This morning is October 14th, Sunday morning. Our message is spiritual cardiology. This whole message should be a biblical examination of our hearts. This is a picture here of a street in Beit Shin. Beit Shin is a city in Israel, and uh, this is where King Saul was killed. Lots of beautiful things happen here. King Saul being killed was not one of them. But the reason I brought this picture back from Israel is because this is a main street in Beit Shin. And I don't know whether you can tell in the detail of the picture or not, but off to the left and the right, this road slopes. This uh, road is the major thoroughfare. By the way, this hillside back here was an album cover for a famous secular group. Probably nobody in here but Craig would know who that was. It's a Beatles album. But in any case, running right down the main center of the street, and they called it in Greek a cardo. Where we get the word for cardiology has to do with the study in, in medicine of someone's heart, but it doesn't just mean the organ. It means the center of a human being. It's interesting because in Hebrew in the Bible, the word is lieb, and God uses it uh, for organs, but He also uses it for your emotions, emotions or the center of a human being. They called the main drag in every city a cardo, or the heart of the city. There's two occurrences of this word that are the very first in the Bible, and they are telling. Friends, you should learn these. Listen to this. In Genesis 6, starting in verse 5, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that the inclination... What's an incline? This is the way something slopes, right? The inclination, the sloping of his heart, the tendencies of his heart, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all of the time. Well, the thing that is beating in your body, that is in a, a remarkably efficient pump, moving blood in and out throughout your circulatory system, does not think. So we're talking about something deeper than just this muscle that pounds in your chest, that you can feel in your pulse. We're talking about the very center of a human being. And in man's heart, there was evil all of the time. The Lord was grieved that He made man on the earth and His heart was filled with pain. Now, the Bible declares that God, the Father, is spirit and can't be seen. That He poured Himself into a man who is His perfect reflection, His image, the man Jesus that we call the Anointed One. But God, the Father, you shouldn't think of as having a beating heart. So what is this Scripture trying to say? It's trying to say that in the very center of who God is, it caused Him pain to see how human beings had reacted to Him. Most of us go about our daily life thinking about what we might need from God occasionally, but never thinking about what God needs or wants from us. When He sees certain behavior, the Bible says it filled the core, the center, the heart of God with pain. This morning we're going to examine our thoughts, how they affect our hearts, how they affect the heart of God. In James 1, we have this scripture. If you'd like to turn there, that's great. If not, I put it on the screen for you. James 1, the 13th verse. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. God never encouraged anybody to do something wrong. He's the author of everything that is right. Have you noticed on the news, if a hurricane comes in and wipes out a town, what do they say? This was an act of God! But if a baby has a miracle happen, what do they say? 
oh, medical science has healed us. Or it's a coincidence. We blame everything bad on God and we take credit for everything that is good in our lives as a people. The Bible says when something bad happens, nobody should say that this is God. Nobody should say that God is trying to get you to do something bad. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. I've started to call this James' pyramid of sin and death because I'm a preacher and I like to make up funny words. A thought can bring down a human being. Any of you ever look in the mirror and think that you're not good enough? Somebody told me just two days ago that they thought their biggest problem in life was that they didn't believe they could succeed at anything. God never desired this for any of us. This morning is not a message on how to increase your self-esteem. As you find out who you are in Christ, you won't have self-esteem problems. This morning is a message that will begin to teach us how the thoughts affect our heart every bit as much as your eating habits and your genetics affect your physical heart. In my family, some have taken dramatic steps because the reality of the health of their heart has become apparent to them. So they eat only certain foods that they believe are healthy. This is wise. People are used to doing this. Why do people begin working out at the first of the year? Because they've just had a chance to reflect on the previous year and they didn't lose the weight that they wanted to. They aren't as healthy as they wanted to be. They've made themselves a promise that something's going to change. Why are our TVs filled with diet ads and commercials about exercise equipment? Because all of us know something's wrong with the physical body that we need to work to improve that. Some do and some don't. I'm in the category that is not. But we can't afford to be so lax and so liberal about our spiritual heart. We're talking this morning about spiritual cardiology because there is no question that every bit as much as if you eat fatty foods all of your life, it will cause heart disease. If you entertain the wrong thoughts, it will kill you spiritually maybe much faster. Do you need a doctor to tell you that? The Word of God will tell us that. It starts with a thought. Where do desires originate? You guys need to think about this for a minute. Before you ever committed any sin at any time, you had to have a thought to do it that your mind began to dwell on. And dwelling on it gave it power. You invest in it as you dwell on it. Especially when you were a teenager, did you ever have the thought, what would, my, what would everybody's life be like without me? If I weren't here, if they were at my funeral, I bet they'd all be sad then. All of these manipulative kind of thoughts. And you are empowering it. Driving down the road, spouses, ever looked at the car next to you, not with lust, not thinking, gosh, I want that person, but just began to think in your mind, what would my life have been like if I had married them? You begin to dwell on that and you start to give it power. It will start in your body and in your spirit to grow in strength. A thought that is unrestrained becomes something that entices you. And then there's always the chance that the enticement becomes strong enough that you act on it. What the Bible says is if you act on these things, that is like giving birth to something that will grow in your life until it has terminated you. It has killed you. Well, don't we then need to identify what these thoughts are? 
Shouldn't we take a look at how to restrain them? If America's consumed with the idea that we should take pills, be it vitamins or medicines or whatever, to be healthy. If America's consumed with the idea that we need exercise equipment in our homes, some way to improve the physical well-being. Shouldn't we at some point consider the things that we do that dramatically affect the heart of a human being? Paul writing to his young friend Timothy, and it's interesting that an older man says this to a younger. You'll find that this fits a pattern in the Bible. He says, exercise is profitable, but godliness is profitable for all things. I think it's great that we invest in our bodies, but never forget, every one of you in this room is dying. Every one of you. Some of us faster than others. Some of us closer to that appointment than others. But every one of us is dying. That's investing in something that ultimately is going to perish. Investing in your spirit, that's something that will not die. If you invest in it, it will last forever. Now, if we were talking about money and I said, I'd like you to put $100 into this account and 70 or so years, it'll be gone. How excited would you be about that? But if I told you you could invest in something that would never fade, spoil, or perish, you might get excited about that. Friends, as a pastor, every time I get to do a funeral, you hear that, get to? Nobody wants to do funeral, especially not for the lost. This forces me to think about what I'm investing in my own heart. I don't want to die spiritually. Turn to Genesis 4. Now you don't have a choice with this one. If you don't have a Bible, then look on with somebody next to you. Genesis is the first book in the Bible, and it basically means the beginning of all things. As you're turning there, the book of Genesis is unique. It's unique among religious work. It's unique among the books of the world. It makes the claim in the very beginning that there is one God who created everything that you see. Not a sun God. Not a fertility God. Not some created thing. It makes the claim that this book is the story about an all-powerful God who made everything that you see. That is unique, especially for its day. Moses began compiling this 1,600 years before Jesus. And in Genesis 4, we hear a story about two boys. The first two that were born on the planet. Those of you very familiar with this know that in Genesis 3, there is a break in God's relationship with man. In Genesis 3, there is something that man did that God asked them not to do. Isn't it interesting that in the third chapter of Genesis, when you have a break between God and man, in the fourth chapter, you begin to have a break between man and man? Have you ever wondered why it's difficult for you to get along with people at times? Have you ever wondered why your spouse just won't change more quickly? Of course not. Y'all are all yeah, loving couples, right? You ever been frustrated with humanity around you? I think we all have if we answer honestly. The truth is, when we're not in harmony with our fellow man, it's indicative of a problem between us and God. Because God will give you the right eyes to see your fellow man. And instead of being upset with the person next to you for their weakness, you suddenly become filled with mercy and love for them, realizing that their weakness is different than yours, but you both have them. Instead of being angry at the person in traffic, just cut you off, you can smile and say, it's just brought divine order to my day. Apparently, I didn't need to be there as quickly. Amen, Brandon? Brandon was with me yesterday and he said, 
wow, I didn't realize when you preach about these examples, they really happened in your life. Some guy laid on the horn and gave me a special kind of salute that... He, well, he wasn't trying to tell me that I was number one, but it looked like that. Y'all didn't get that? Or it's just not funny? Not funny? Yeah. And so I had a power sliding window in the back, and uh, I let him know that I didn't appreciate that. No gestures. I just let him know I didn't appreciate that. And Brandon said, wow, you, uh, you really do preach about the things you struggle with. I said, I'm sorry, I can't see you. There's a plank in my eye. Are you all in Genesis 4? In Genesis 4, starting in uh, verse 2. Later, she gave birth to his brother. Well, I guess we should have started in Genesis 4.1, huh? Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. You know what's interesting about that? The first human being that is born from a loving, married relationship in the Bible. His name is Cain. What do you think his parents... Has anybody ever held up a baby and said, Wow, I bet this one will be a crack whore. Probably never, huh? Anybody ever held up a baby and said, I hope this one gets incarcerated, spends their life on death row. Anybody ever held up a baby with those kind of desires? Well, what I have here, if we invest in them, we'll produce a murderer. Probably no mother has ever done that. What do you think Eve looked at this baby and thought? The hope of all mankind. God has promised that there would be a Redeemer that would come through my body. That happened in Genesis 3. Maybe this first man is that Redeemer. She had hope for her baby the same way we all have hope for ours. It's off subject, but when you pass somebody under an interstate in this city, it's easy to look at them just as garbage. Some mother somewhere held that baby at some point and had hopes for their life. God has the same hopes for every human being. It's not His will that anybody should be perished, that anybody should throw, be thrown away. That's not His will. All human beings are in the same boat. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of the flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Many times you'll hear preachers talk about why this is. And they examine the nuts and the bolts. Well, this offering God received because it was a good offering. And this one not because... Does it matter? Doesn't God, the God of the universe, have the right to say, this pleases me, this does not? And if we're going to be His people, He's our Lord, meaning our owner and controller, who are we to argue with Him about what pleases Him and what doesn't? The Bible will teach all of us the right way to live. Every one of us. It will display that for us. And it's not our prerogative, it should not be, to argue with the Creator about whether or not we think He's made a good choice. I know our thoughts drawn to, well, why was God favoring this and why not that? We can explore that some other time, but I would submit to you this morning, it's really not important. What's important is that the God of the universe made plain to this human being, I'm not pleased with that. And what is his reaction? So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. What does that mean? Does that mean his face suddenly hit the ground? 
What does it mean when his face is downcast? This is a Hebraic way to say the corners of his mouth were pointing at the ground. The first place that something shows up in a believer's life that something is wrong is their joy begins to escape them. Now, what is robbing his joy? My brother is accepted and I am not. His face is downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? What a great question. He said, This pleases me, this doesn't. Did he throw any stones at Cain? Did he burn him? Did he condemn him right away? No, not at all. Why is your face so downcast? Why are you frowning? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. But you must master it. All of us are presented with thoughts. The thought in itself is not necessarily bad. What you do with it becomes bad. I cannot stop the fact that the devil may throw a fiery dart at me that says, Cassidy doesn't like you very much. But at that point that that thing has entered between my ears or between my shoulders in my heart, I get to decide what to do with it. At that point, I am empowered to make some choices. Is this in line with what God's Word teaches me? That I should dwell on that thought? That I should breathe into it and give it life? So that maybe I've created a problem between Cassidy and I where there was none? Have you ever misunderstood something and began to think a certain way? And then you run into that person, they're completely unaware of it, but now there's a problem? I saw the way you looked at me. They were looking at the guy behind you. You know, I heard what you said about me. And they were talking about their neighbor, not you. There's a process. Envy and anger. Cain is envious that his brother's accepted and that he wasn't accepted. This begins to roll around in his mind. Everything he does, God accepts. Everything that I do, I'm the poor, unfavored one. What was Cain, friends? The firstborn. Cain was the one that actually, according to Hebraic thought, had his parents' approval. When God pointed out that He was pleased with this and not pleased with this, it wasn't to condemn Cain. It was to show Cain the right way to do something. He began to roll around with a thought that was not, how can I correct my behavior? How can I better myself? How can I move into acceptance? It began to turn on his brother. Anger that expresses itself in a way that says, I wish that person was not favored the way that they are. I wish it was me, is what envy is. Cain dwelt on these thoughts and feelings until it birthed an even more wicked desire. Well, what do I do if my parents love this one and don't love me? Well, I can remove them from the earth. You see how a thought that was unbridled grew into something that was wicked? And we don't know how long. I mean, we don't know whether this was 20 years or two days or two hours. But he had a chance when that anger came to do something with it. The Bible said he could have mastered it. The desire grew as Cain premeditated the murder. He began thinking about where and when he might rid himself of this horrible problem that his brother was accepted, but he was not. 
This is so easy as long as we make it about Cain. What if it's about us, though? My boss doesn't like me, but he likes them. And so at the coffee pot, you make sure that whoever them is, is not spoken about in a favorable light. Did you see? Did you see the way they acted at that party? The boss just likes them because, you know, I hear they're uh, hooking up after work. Yeah. We all laugh because we've heard all of that before, right? And it's all okay as long as it's not being said about us. Hmm. This desire grew as Cain premeditated the murder. The desire was so enticing that he followed through with it and committed the sin. Friends, the longer you allow a wrong thought to dwell in you, the more it grows in strength. The more you begin to dwell on something that is negative, the more of a hold it has on you. And he began to act on it. What color is usually associated with envy? Green. Cain was green with envy. That's kind of yucky, isn't it? Looks like something a bird flew over. That was a pretty clear jar of water. And now it's got something permeating it. And it'll work the whole time that I'm speaking. It won't just stay at the bottom like that. It'll reach what's called the place of equilibrium. Meaning that that color is stretching out in every direction to infect every area of that vessel. So that everything that you see through this vessel at some point is tainted by the envy and the anger that has gotten into it. Evil thoughts are just this way. It never stops with just the thought. It suddenly colors your outlook on life. This is why you meet people and they are unhappy and they can't even tell you why. Well, my dad didn't love me. Sorry. That was 55 years ago. He's been dead 20 years. Well, I had a knee injury and my athletic career was ruined. Great. I'm sorry that happened to you in what? The fourth grade? But it has permeated every area of our lives. Let's turn to 1 Samuel 10. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Then we got first and second Samuel. I actually missed Ruth. But I figured you figured that out. In first Samuel ten, let's read these verses. Then Samuel. Y'all there? Tell me when you're there. there. Alright, the right side of the room is there. Where's the left side? Okay. You're doing good, buddy. Keep going. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head. And he kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? Wouldn't you say it's a pretty special thing if God says, Hey, you're going to lead what is mine. When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, the donkey you set out to look for, the donkeys you set out to look for have been found. And now your father has stopped thinking about them and he is worried about you. 
He is asking, what shall I do about my son? God is speaking through a prophet to a man. And he says, hey, God's anointed you as king. What do we usually say when there's a promise of God in our life? Well, how can I know? You're going to heal me, God? How could I know that's true? You're going to fix my finances, God? How could I know that's true? You're going to bring me my spouse? I mean, come on, it's been ten years. How do I know that's true? In this case, God says, you're going to be a king. His heart says, how can I know that's true? So God begins giving him a list of very specific signs to build his trust. He says, hey, when you leave here, you're going to meet some guys. They will say to you, the donkeys you set out to look for have been found. And now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. Why God saw fit to tell Saul about his donkeys, I have no idea. But it's something that nobody could know except God. How could they know that donkeys would be found an hour from now? And watch, these get more and more specific and there's a reason. Then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men will be going up to God at Bethel. We'll meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. You're going to go, you're going to meet these people, you're going to talk to them about donkeys, then you're going to go to another place, and there'll be three people carrying three goats and three loaves of bread. How could anybody know that? But I bet when Saul goes, and the first people he meets talk to him about donkeys, and the next people he meets have three goats, there's three of them, and three loaves of bread, this would do something in Saul. It would begin to build his trust that whatever God says would happen, no matter how ridiculous, no matter how off the wall, will happen. Can you say amen to that? Would you like experiences like these in your lives? You know where they're found? God's Word will tell you exactly what will happen in your life. In fact, He told Adam and Eve, if you do this, you'll die. Did they become dead the moment they ate fruit? No, but they started a process leading them towards exactly what God said would happen they would die. The Word of God also says if we do certain things, we will live. Well, how can we know that it's true? Because every other thing God ever said would happen, has happened. Everything. Then you'll go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men will going up from God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread. They've got three, but they're going to offer him two. You hear the detail in this? Sister Eve's auto sales or uh, the psychic hotline or anybody else that you call, I doubt you'll get this kind of detail from them. They tend to tell you things like, you're newly married. Wow, I see children in your future. Thank you, I appreciate that. That must have taken a great deal of insight. And hold on, it's coming to me. All of your children will be born naked. Oh, the insight of this oracle! This is amazing! God is not that way. He's not about trickery. He's not about vague promises. He tells you in advance what will happen so that when it happens, you can trust Him. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread from which you can accept them. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high places with lyres, tambourines, flutes, harps being played before them. He names all of their instruments. And they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power and you will prophesy with them. And you will be changed 
into a different person. I named this church Life Changing Ministries because I experienced in 1993 God's Word to be true and it changed me into a different person. Now, I still look like the same old Eric, except I'm fatter now and have less hair. To some, I still sound like the same old Eric. But I am becoming a new person, little by little, every day. No longer mastered by the things that used to master me. Every day, becoming a person. God promises this to Saul. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Hear this. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. From these nine verses, I want you to hear this. We have very specific signs that all happened. That happened so Saul's trust would begin to grow in God. Why does trust need to begin to grow? Because there would come a place where it is tested. I was told that there was a line in a certain place across the Grand Canyon. And a guy took the tires off of his bicycle so that there were just rims. And on this cable, he would ride his bike across this gorge. Can you believe he can do it? Well, yes, we see him doing it. All right, who wants to go hop on the bike with him? That's Christianity. How many of you would jump out there with him? I wouldn't. In a crowd, as an example, he would ask everybody, Hey, who wants to do this? Do you believe that I can do it? Yes, we just saw you do it. Good, get on the handlebars. No, thank you. Well, why not? You said that you believed that I could do it. We do. We believe you can do it. Not sure about us. Suddenly a little boy comes and says, I'll go. Everybody's horrified. He's going to put that child in danger. I can't believe. And why would that little boy do it? The little boy gets on the bicycle, handlebars to make the trip there and make the trip back. He says, thanks, Dad. The way that you know whether or not you are God's children is will you trust Him when no one else will. That's how you know if you're God's children. That's never put to the test unless you're on the handlebars, my friend. He's building Saul's trust because he's going to ask something of him. He promised He would change him into a new person. This happens in our lives when we experience a new beginning in Christ. He's told in these verses, God will be with you. What news for the human race? To think God will be with me, helping me. It's a little bit like getting filled with the Holy Ghost. But at the end, there was a requirement. It came with this quote, You must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. Now, God changed Saul into a new human being. He built his trust. He promised to be with him. And what did he want? He wanted Saul to wait seven days for Samuel to show up and show him what to do. That's what God wanted of him. Wouldn't you think that if God gave you these very specific things in your life, Jennifer, I want you to go to Walmart. And at Walmart, you're going to meet a large lady with three loaves of bread. She's going to give you two. You'll take two. Go ahead, accept them, eat them. And then when you walk outside, you're going to meet a guy with a goat. Take the goat from him. And then after you take the goat, you're going to go to Sam's Wholesale. And while you're there, people with leers and tambourines are going to come. They're not Harry Krishnas. Don't worry about it. You go ahead and go with them. And as you're singing, you'll prophesy. If all of that happened to her in the next five or six hours, just like I said that it would, wouldn't you think she would obey the one request that I make of her? 
I want you to hang out at Sam's for a while until I come and show you what to do. The time? Seven days. Isn't that pretty reasonable? God has a long history of building people's trust, showing them who He is in their character, but then putting it to the test to see whether or not they really do love Him. See, obedience is never tested until you don't really want to do it. Judah, right now, eat ice cream! Sure, Dad. Judah, right now, eat tofu. Now that might take obedience. See, it's not obedience as long as the Gospel is all what you want to do. This is why our churches have gravitated towards one message. You're all wonderful! And God wants you rich! And we can all eat donuts together! (laughs) Glory! There's no obedience in that. There's nothing that's tested. Where is the message that says, but you must wait until God shows you what to do in every area of your life? Where is the message that says, it might hurt. It might be sacrificial. You might cry because you're stretched and it's hard. Where's that message? It's hard to build big churches like that. There was a requirement. If King Saul had a new heart, like most of us who are new to the walk with God, Saul's first experiences were full of miracles. And he was truly changed. Where did he go wrong? Why does the Bible speak about King Saul so negatively later? Don't you think we should look to see how he does? If Saul was a new human being, doesn't this raise some questions for us? He's a new human being, but given a task. And his task was to be where God said, when He said to be there, and don't do anything God didn't say to do. Super Saul. New human being. Hmm. Let's go to 1 Samuel 13. See how easy that is to find? You just turn one page in your Bible. Don't you love your pastor for that? Judah does. 13. Let's look at verse 5. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. The men of Israel saw that their situation was critical. When is trust tested? Oh, when it's critical. And that their army was hard-pressed. When is your trust tested? Oh, I would say when it's critical and you're hard-pressed. They hid in caves and thickets. What did that first line say? They were assembled to fight. But what are they doing? Hiding. As Christians, we are put here as God's hands and feet on the earth. And we are supposed to contend with spiritual powers. But most hide in caves and thickets. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. That's a whole other message, but you're only supposed to cross the Jordan one time in one direction. Crossing the Jordan is like being born again. It's entering into the promised life of God. And if they crossed the Jordan into the promised life of God, but now they're hard-pressed and it's critical, and they ran to the other side of the Jordan, well, I bet you can figure that out. Saul remained at Gilgal. Good, that's where he's supposed to be. And all the troops with him were quaking with fear. 
He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offering. And Saul offered the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the time set and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God. If you had, He would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after His own heart and appointed him leader of His people because you have not kept the Lord's command. They're there assembled to fight. The situation is critical. They're hard-pressed. Many of the men are hiding. The ones that aren't hiding are quaking with fear and scattering. Saul sees something. He feels compelled. He acts against what God told him to do. And at the moment he does it, the prophet arrived. How many times have we given up on a promise of God without knowing how close we were to seeing it fulfilled? Anybody ever planted anything? I know Matt and Cass got into a gardening phase of their life. And they planted things like, what do we rub on the chicken? Rosemary. Really neat to walk out in their yard and see a big rosemary bush that started as a seed and they planted it. But what would happen if they planted it and then the next day they said, is that seed really going to work? And they walked out there and dug it up and checked it out and talked about it and then put it back. And then the next day, you know, I think it'll work. Oh, come on, let's leave. Let's just leave it one more day. And then maybe three days they said, you know, we've waited long enough. Where's our rosemary bush? And went out and dug it back up. How often have you aborted the promises of God in your life because you could not wait? Seven is a number in the Bible that means perfection. Whatever length of time is required needs to be the answer. It's not about seven days or nine days or ten days. It's about whatever length of time it takes, friend. I heard a comedian one day say that some guys threw him out of a bar. And he didn't know how many bouncers it was going to take to throw him out. But he knew how many they were going to use. <laughs> he didn't like that. So he got them left. I don't know how many days it'll take for you to see the promises of God fulfilled. But you better make up your mind ahead of time. As many as it takes, that's what it'll be. You will not give up on Him and He will not give up on you. The answer to Samuel's question is amazing. I thought, so I felt compelled to do what you told me not to do. Think about the results. His thought that went unrestrained and what that did. He gets the proclamation from God Himself, you acted like an idiot. You acted foolishly. He's told that another person will be raised up because he's better looking, because he's more talented, because he has the consensus, a mandate from the people. None of those things. God would raise up somebody who would do what He told them to do. If Saul started with a good heart, one that God gave him, what happened to it to ruin it? 
Samuel said, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, indicating that Saul had a cardiac problem, a little congenital heart disease. What happened to Saul's heart? Fear is present in it. That fear began to generate unhealthy thoughts. I haven't sought God's favor. Everybody's running from me. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Oh, I could offer the burnt offering that only the prophet is supposed to offer. Hmm. Well, it has been seven days. Maybe I should go do that. And that thought began to be empowered the more he sat and dwelt on it until, I'll be darned, out there doing it. I thought, so I felt compelled, and I offered the burnt offering. You remember that James Pyramid? His fear birthed the desire to sin. And if sin is left unchecked in your life, it will always produce death. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. In this case, birth was the very thing, the only thing God asked me not to do, I'm going to do. If he lets this problem grow in his life until it's full grown, it will produce death in him. Fear was present, Saul thought something. It produced a desire, then sin. He can still repent. He may not heal. There will be consequences, but he can still turn around. One of my favorite songs is by Johnny Lang. It says, it is never too late to turn around. You may be all the way towards the wrong city. Let's just say you're going to Las Vegas with evil intent on your mind. You could be right outside the city. You could have just entered it. It is never too late to turn around. You just have to decide, decide that you want to. Saul gets another test. It wouldn't really be fair to give a guy one test and then him fail. God is not the God of just the second chance. He's the God of the 10,000th chance. But I want you to hear this. God prophesied in advance when Saul did this, I'm going to have to give the kingdom to somebody else and take it away from you because he saw an unchecked seed. You might call it a weed. And it was growing up around Saul's spiritual neck choking him. God could see that Saul had heart disease and did not have the will to do anything about it. So he says in advance what will happen to Saul, but still gives him a chance to change. Very few times in the Bible God is surprised, but there are a few. There's a centurion who believes Jesus when he speaks. And the Bible says Jesus was astonished at the man's great faith because he hadn't found anything like that among the people of God. Everybody around you may say you have no hope. You're a failure and the kingdom is going to be taken from you. But there is a trust in God that surprises not only your friends, it may even surprise God. It is never too late to turn around. Turn with me to Samuel 15. We'll try to move on from here. But you need to hear this. Samuel 15, starting in verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over His people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. 
The Amalekites were a warlike people that dwelt in the valleys. Their name means warlike and valley dweller. And they were looking for any people of God who were not in the center of the pack that they could devour them. God remembers people like that. He marked them out of all the people groups of the earth and said, I'm going to wipe them out. The kind that want to devour my people and eat them like food, I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. I know we hear God is love, God is love, God is love. You need to understand God hates the wicked. But we get a choice whether or not we're going to be wicked. Now go and attack the Amalekites and totally, totally, when I was a kid, we'd say, totally destroy them. Everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men, women, children, infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. God looked at the situation on the earth and said, if we do not remove this warlike people that is trying to destroy my work on the planet, then we're going to have a problem always. I have one anointed chosen group of people. I want them to be at war with them. T totally destroy them. Do not spare them. Put them to death. Is that a pretty clear request? If you were a soldier and you were given a request like this, would it be confusing? Would you say, Lord, I don't understand the words that you are saying? I don't understand the words that are coming out of your mouth. Probably not. This is pretty darn clear. Is it hard though? Sure. Might you have a thought that it's not the right thing to do? Could you have a thought that says, why destroy that? I could keep it. <laughs> I'll do something for God with it. Hey, that 30 pieces of silver I can feed orphans with. How'd you get the 30 pieces of silver? Let's not talk about that. In the 15th chapter, in the 7th verse, we hear how Saul did. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur. Are you sure? Another bad preacher joke. To east of Egypt. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Was that what he was told to do? And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. Well, that part was good. But Saul... And the army, Saul and the army, spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat of calves and lambs, everything that was good. How about that? Hmm. They were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. So it sounds like they heard the of God. They were excited. Oh yeah, I've been waiting to get it on with these guys. Because it's what they wanted to do. But what didn't they want to do? You hear this? Killing infants? No problem. Killing wives? No problem. Getting rid of a sheep? That's a problem. Because I could use that. Getting rid of the best of what they have? That's a problem. How about that? They were unwilling. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle and they were unwilling to destroy completely. In the 10th verse, 
we find out that what God said about Saul's heart had become true. Starting in 10 with me. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me. There's a whole group of people that say that's not even possible. Don't worry about what the word says. You just trust them because it's what you want to hear. Do any of your ears itch? Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor. Isn't that beautiful? A religious leader with a heart disease. His heart disease is that he will not do. The word said he was unwilling to do what God had said. But what is he out doing? Building monuments in his own honor. You've never seen that. Have you ever done it though? What is this monument going to say? I went to war with the Amalekites. Yeah, and you did about 50% of what God told you to. We could be completely rid of them at this point. By the way, you can trace the Amalekites to a couple people groups today. And they're at war with everyone else on the planet and they'd like to kill us all. Monument in his own honor. And he has turned to God. I'm sorry. And he has turned and gone down to Gilgal. Verse 13. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. <laughs> I have carried out the instructions of the Lord. Hey, I'm okay. You're okay. Look, we're all dressed pretty for church. I'm a Christian. You're a Christian. Don't dig too deep. You can't see my heart disease. You can't see that I won't really do what God wants when it's critical and I'm hard-pressed. Let's all build monuments in our own honor here today. Maybe we could put an insignia on the pew. We could tell everybody, I'm a charter member of that church. Look at me, how religious I am. You don't know anybody that has covered themselves with this kind of religious talk, do you? I bet you've never been that person. See, I'm unfortunate, I have. I have been the guy with heart disease that told everybody everything was fine. And then I had a dramatic encounter with my king where I realized that I was on the wrong side of the argument and I was doomed for destruction. Worse than that, I realized that it was incurable and there was nothing that I could do about it. And so I cried out to him, Would you help me? Would you help me? Actually, what I said was, Lord, change me. I need a heart transplant. Here I am 15 years later. He's still working with me. I'm not on my second test. I'm on my 1500th test. Lots of them I've gotten wrong. But I found out He's merciful if He just sees you're willing to try. <laughs> I don't want to read all the rest of this to you. I just want to tell you. Saul claimed he had carried out God's instructions. He's built monuments in his own honor. Worse than that, he was so dece deceived that his excuse was... Even though the Bible said Saul and the army decided to do these things, he goes, they, they spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Hey, it was their choice and it's your God. National pastime. Transferal of the blame. But we totally destroyed the rest. He points to what he did good. We destroyed the rest. They failed to do what God said. 
And it was all for your God. Neatly shedding himself of all responsibility. Blaming everyone else. Leaving himself justified in only his eyes. Because God's going to condemn him. How many people do you know that are justified in their own eyes that God's going to condemn? Even when confronted by Samuel about this and told obedience is better than sacrifice, he would not come clean because he had a fatal heart disease. Why did Saul fail this test? It's in the 24th verse and I put it on the board for you. Then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned! I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. Well, why? Why would you turn your back on the Creator of everything? Well, I was afraid of the people, so I gave in to them. Hmm. What color is most associated with fear? Yellow. Yellow belly coward. You need to decide this day that you don't want to be envious of other people, what they have, who they are. You need to decide this day that you won't be more afraid of what people think than what your God thinks. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, starting in about the fifth verse, that we have weapons of righteousness. That we're ready to tear down every thought that exalts itself against God. This means that every time you have a thought that you know is wrong, like a skilled warrior, you pull that thought down and toss it from your mind. Because the longer it rolls around between your ears and in your heart, it grows more and more strength until I can assure you, you will do things that you never thought you would do. I told you earlier, no mother ever thinks, oh wow, my kid will be a prostitute. That's what I want for their vocation. When you ask little boys and girls what they want for their own lives, somewhere around kindergarten, none of them ever say, I surely hope to fail. It's not only not their parents' dreams, it was never any of our dreams. Sin will always take you further than you wanted to go. It always hurt you worse than you thought that it would. This bad thought, this sin, got in to Saul's heart. Even though he was a new person, a new creation, God was with him. It gave him a bad desire. It enticed him towards evil. And in the end, it warred against his faith and killed him. I think we need to identify wrong thoughts. In my own family, I had an experience. Around the time I got born again, I went with my grandfather. Those of you that didn't know my grandfather, remarkable human being. He could build anything. Might be the toughest guy in the 70s that I ever met. We roofed a house together. I was about 18. He, I think, was 72. And he roofed the house with me in the middle of the summer. One of the things that he wanted to do with me, yeah, I, I, it's sad, but there's some guys in here in their 20s that could not keep up with my grandfather in his 70s. One of the things he did with me in Mississippi, though, is we visited all the family cemeteries. He became obsessed. He said it was with history, but truthfully, it was with him facing his own death. And he began to tell me stories about our relatives, and one stuck with me. I couldn't help but notice that in my own family genealogy, there was biblical name after biblical name after biblical name. Until we got to a guy 
named George Rhodes. And I couldn't figure out with my great-grandfather, well, why is he George and everyone before him is Isaiah and Ezekiel and on and on and on. And he began to tell me that his family had always gone to church and were very religious people. But George Rhodes' father, I'm sorry, actually it was George Rhodes, was riding his horse from one town to another. And the preacher of the town heard him singing and what I would describe as praising and accused him of being drunk on Sunday morning. So George got his feelings hurt. It caused him pain because his own pastor said, you know, George sinned and you shouldn't do that. And truthfully, he was innocent. George had a kid named Moses who was born before that event. Why would you name your kid Moses, you think? Maybe because you'd heard Bible stories? Maybe because you saw Moses as a great man and you had great hopes for your kid? Well, George fell out of church and so did Moses. And he fell out of church because a pastor made a mistake. But I venture to uh, guess that that pastor went on and did all right with his life. One mistake. That little bit of pain in George's life, that thought that dwelled in his heart, caused Moses not to raise his kid, Rocky, in church. And that caused Rocky not to raise kids in church. And before we know it, one unbridled thought has the potential to send an entire family to hell. Could we say that that was pain? I was so amazed when I heard that story. Sitting with my grandfather, who truthfully I had come to love. He's the hardest human being I'd ever been around, but I had come to love him. And I was sad because I realized that one man's mistake was affecting four generations. But then the thought hit me. It doesn't have to affect mine. And I'm raising children and my sister's raising children that will grow up in the Lord. And that wasn't good enough. As I began to dwell on this and think about this, I said, you know what? I still have family living today. And we went and talked to our parents who are doing good in the Lord and are with us right now via that camera. And they went and talked to their parents who were still living. And my grandmother, the wife of Rocky Rhodes, is with us on that camera right now. The devil will kill your whole family because of your unbridled thoughts if you let him. But God, through His grace, will let you go back and reclaim all who have not yet perished because He's not willing that any should perish. And my little old grandmother sits and smiles and she likes two preachers. Joel Osteen, who, Lord, I can't compete with that. And me. What I'm excited about with that is it means that that one bad thought won't wreak havoc in my family anymore. See, it's like pollution. Pollution will kill something that is clean and beautiful. Proverbs 4.23 says, above, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Above all else, saints, guard your heart. Why? Because that one thought that pulled you out of church, that preacher was unfair to me. He embarrassed me. Well, that is great. You sure showed him. You almost sent your whole family four generations to hell. I bet you punished that preacher. You think that preacher had four generations of family that went to hell? In the immortal words of Lindy Slaughter, harboring bitterness 
It's like drinking poison and expecting that the other person will die. It's happened in my own family. Now, we're going back and repairing what the devil has destroyed. But let me ask you something. If you heard that there was a bus crash and four generations of people died, how sad would you be? Is it any less travesty when one man quits walking with God and so everybody after him quits? I'd say it's a bigger travesty. You can strike down a body and it can be raised again. If your spirit dies and what's called the second death, it'll never be raised again. Nothing but a fearful expectation of judgment. How about that? I hate to garden. I hate to cut the grass. And one time I took this stuff, not this brand, but this weed and feed, and I put it all over the yard. I got one of those little deals from Matthew that you pour it into and it scatters it everywhere like sowing seed. And your old fat white pastor's out there in the sun getting scorched, throwing this everywhere. And something happened. I burned up all my grass. And I couldn't figure out how that was possible. I wanted to weed out the weeds and feed the grass. Not everything in my yard that looked like grass was grass. The Bible says that it is not a man's outward appearance that makes him pleasing to God. It's his heart. Not everybody who claimed they were princes with God, Israelites, were actually princes with God. And I want to tell you a secret. Not everybody, not everybody even in your own churches, maybe not even this one, who claims to be a Christian is. Mark 4. Let's go there. Then I want to point to you something about this. I'm so happy you're here, Elizabeth. That's my niece. Matthew, Mark, second book of the New Testament. We're going to skip the first nine verses. In the first nine verses, Jesus tells what is called the parable of the sower. It's incorrectly named. There is nothing different about the guy throwing the seed in all of these examples. What is different is the soil that it lands on. And the soil represents your heart. Jesus explains it. I figure we'll skip the example and go straight to the King of Kings explaining it. Start in verse 13. Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the Word. Some people are like the seed along the path where the Word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and take away, takes away the Word that was sown in them. We've always thought about this as salvation. It is every word that you've ever heard. Every word that you have ever heard produced in you thoughts that the Bible says will either bring you life or bring you death. And things have been imparted to you that you have a chance to meditate on, that you have a chance to build on, that you have a chance to produce a crop for God. Or you can let Satan steal it from you. Some are going to let Satan steal it. Others, like seeds sown in rocky places. How interesting is that? Hear the Word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the Word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among the thorns, hear the Word, 
But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things, the desires for other things, come and choke the Word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the Word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, and 100 fold. Saints, quit thinking about salvation. Every anointed word you've ever heard from God, every single one, was meant to produce something in you. A life-changing power. Produce a new walk. Change you into a different person. Change your way of thinking. Produce life in you. 30, 60, and 100 fold. But desires for something else. That's good, but those sheep over there would be better. That's good, but this would be better. Desire for anything other than what God said erodes your trust in God. And it begins to choke you. Did you notice on this weed and feed bag, it it said something. That's why I blew it up this big. Non-burning formula. If you know that seed is going to be sown into your life, you want to feed it and you want to weed out those desires that would choke you. You want the non-burning formula of weed and feed. All of us have a responsibility, saints, is to feed what we know is godly in us and destroy what is not. We don't have time to read this. You know about King David. King David faced the giant Goliath when everyone was running in fear. But his own brothers accused him, because they were envious of him, of having a wicked heart. David's response to all of this was, even though no one else will go and do what God has said to do, I will because I don't want Israel to lose their heart. I don't want Israel to lose the good soil that trusts God. So I will go when no one else will. That's what we're looking for in you. We're looking for you to realize that people may accuse you of things that are bad. Realize that people may not accept you because they're quaking with fear and they're scared at the courage that they see in you. But you refuse to be dissuaded from doing what God said because you want a healthy heart. David, in a nutshell, saw a giant who was opposing Israel not as an obstacle, but as an opportunity. Everyone else said, we can't because he's too big. David said, when I kill him, everybody will say, God's great. David saw obstacles as an opportunity to overcome. Whatever hinders you in your life is a chance for God to build a bigger testimony. Psalm 119 teaches us a principle. It says, I have chosen the way of truth. I have set my heart on your laws. In the very beginning of this, we read to you that there was a natural sloping, an inclination towards what is evil. Your hearts will try to lead you towards something that is not right because it's hard. It takes work to set your heart on God. Colossians 3 tells us to put to death anything that wars against it. Tells us to put our minds on God continually. David's heart was considered right. Acts 13 verse 23 says because he would do what God told him to do. What do you remember about David that was not good? What do you remember? Bathsheba, right? David did something that was wrong. Is that what defines us? The mistakes we made? According to God, he liked David because David also did what God told him to do. 
In other words, failing doesn't define you. Trying to succeed in God's eyes defines you. You don't believe me? Go read about the sheep and the goats. A goat is someone who would not try for God. They did not go to the prison. They did not feed Him. They did not clothe Him. A sheep was somebody who just tried. How could David have a heart after God and do those bad things? Because we all got heart disease that God needs to heal. But what he had in him was a desire to do what God wanted him to do. Christianity is not about a life of restriction. It's not about I'm a Christian because I don't do this and this and this. Christianity is about doing what God wants you to do. Christianity is an action sport, not a passive exercise in intellectualism. My favorite verse in all of the Bible about David is in Psalm 141, verse 4. Let not my heart be drawn to what is evil, to take part in wicked deeds with men who are evildoers. Let me not eat of their delicacies. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil on my head. My head will not refuse it. I have reared back as hard as I can and slapped us all today because I want you to consider what is going into your heart and what you're doing with it. Because the outcome is God can heal our heart disease. He can change the inclination of our heart from something that slopes towards evil towards something that only delights in righteousness. A healthy heart like David's starts with your thoughts being governed by the Word. But how can you govern your thoughts by the Word if you don't know what the Word says? So you have to develop a love for it. You have to read it. This will cause your trust in God to rise because you will see all of the things that God has said and have come to pass and it will change you. You will learn to see things that oppose you as opportunities. You will find yourself doing God's work on earth because if He wants to set a slave free, He uses a man like Moses to do it. And if God wants to split the Red Sea, He has a man stretch His hand forth. If God wants to deliver a whole nation from a foreign army, He raises up a man to do it. God will raise up in you the strength and the character that will do His work. And this is what Jesus calls an abundant life. One that is consumed with the will of God. And that says that you have a heart like God. Pollution can be cleansed away. Jesus says, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The Word of God becomes in you a source that removes pollutants. If you didn't know what this was in here, if you had not seen me put food coloring in here, if you had just walked in and this clear vessel was tainted with all of this yuckiness, would you want to drink it? Of course not. And this is what we allow to be poured into ourselves every time we entertain thoughts that are not good. Something that is nasty and yucky, just like this. But what God promises us is that His spring in you will become like a well, welling up to eternal life. And you say, Lord, but i got this yuckiness in me. And I've been trying to weed it and feed what is good. And I can't seem to get it out. 
and He will overwhelm it by pouring Himself into you. So that what begins to happen is you keep being filled and filled and filled and filled with Him until all that was dark and yucky begins to become clear. And then it starts to overflow to all of the people that are around you in your life. And you say, but I don't have enough water. I could never make it clean. And He promises that He will pour as much as it takes. He's an inexhaustible source until what we have left over is something that is clear and pretty again. He'll put a garden hose in it. He will make it like a spring in you, welling up till it washes out all of the ugliness. And what you're left with may still have little twinges of you in it, but it's clean and you can drink it again. This is what God promises for the believer. Weed out the bad thoughts. Feed what is good. You can be made clean again. In fact, the word goes so far as to say, if you were stained red, if you were stained red with the indelible ink that comes from a special kind of worm made for the purpose of something that can't be removed, I can clean you white as wool, as white as snow again. God's Word says that because He wanted to give us all hope. The last chapter of the book of Revelation, the last chapter in the Bible is where we close today. It's the 21st chapter and the 6th verse. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty. The question this morning is this, are you thirsty for God? If you like your polluted water, if you like your weeds, then God will allow them to choke you until you die. But if you're thirsty for something that is clean, something that is beautiful, He'll pour as much of Himself into you as it takes to change you. He asks one question, not are you capable, not how big is your container, not how much will it cost. He just says, are you thirsty for a new way of life? Because He will give you without cost from a spring of living water. And then He promises that if you overcome, you will inherit everything that is His. Verse 8 is a warning though. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, those who don't trust, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be a fiery lake of burning sulfur. The choice is very clear when we examine our hearts. Do we want God to fill us in a way that makes us clean again, creating in us a clean heart? Or do we want to be consumed with cowardice and deception so that we burn? God doesn't want any of us to burn. So He's made it easy. It's free. He'll pour as much of Him into you as you're thirsty for. The choice is yours. Y'all stand up and let's pray.